0: Welcome to episode 47 of the Energy Balance Podcast, where we teach you how to live without constant hunger and cravings, fatigue, brain fog, poor sleep, and other low-energy symptoms by maximizing your cellular energy. I'm Jay Feldman. I'm a health coach and independent health researcher, and joining me again today is my good friend Mike Fave. Mike and I have been studying health and nutrition together for a long time now. And Mike also draws on his experiences from working within the healthcare industry. Today's episode is going to be part one of our take on the croissant diet. And in this episode, we'll be digging into a lot of the biochemistry and underlying physiology behind uh, the croissant diet perspective and, and what we think about it. We'll be talking specifically about the major issues with the reactive oxygen species theory of obesity And this is the theory or the idea that weight loss is caused by a lack of reactive oxygen species and that increasing reactive oxygen species by fat oxidation is the best way to lose fat. So we'll be breaking down the major issues with that theory. We'll also be talking about why fat burning is inefficient and does not lead to healthy weight loss. We'll be discussing the real problem with PUFA and why they don't decrease reactive oxygen species production, which is a perspective that we'll be digging into as far as the croissant diet goes. We'll be talking about why carbohydrates and insulin don't cause fat gain and also how increasing cellular energy through efficient mitochondrial respiration is the key to healthy fat loss. Uh, Today's episode came about from a question from a podcast listener and if you have any questions that you'd like us to discuss on a future Q&A episode, you can send those in to j at com, or you can leave those in the comments if you're watching on YouTube. And if you are new to the podcast, then after listening through today's episode, I'd highly recommend you go back and listen through episodes one through seven where we take some time to build a foundation as far as the bioenergetic view of health. To check out the show notes for today's episode, you can head over to jayfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast where you can take a look at the studies and articles and everything else that we reference throughout today's episode. And if you are working on any low energy symptoms, maybe you're dealing with chronic cravings or hunger or fatigue or weight gain, joint pain, gut inflammation, brain fog, hormonal imbalances, poor sleep or insomnia, or any chronic health conditions, then head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy, where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course where I will explain why these symptoms and conditions are really caused by a lack of energy, and I'll also walk you through the main things that you can do to restore your cellular energy and reverse these symptoms and conditions. So, to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com/energy. And with that, let's get started. All right. So we've gotten a couple questions about the croissant diet from. Brad Marshall, who has a website called fire in a bottle.net. And, you know, we've gotten a few questions, which obviously seems like there's some interest in our perspective on that diet. And I I have seen it kind of float around a little bit in the repeat sphere, because there are some overlapping ideas or concepts. Uh, And so I figured we would discuss some of our thoughts on it. And also, I think it's a good exercise just in digging into the physiology a little bit, understanding some opposing point of views and, you know, where we align, where we don't. And there's a lot of really, really interesting physiology here. It's a good application of a lot of what we discuss as far as the bioenergetic view and as far as hormesis, which we've talked about, we haven't had a particular podcast episode on, but that concept is definitely going to come up. So, yeah, I figured we would dig in a little bit there into a couple of these questions and just our view on his views of physiology and of health and of a diet that leads to fat loss. And yeah, so the couple of questions that came up specifically, one was from Allison and she just asked, uh, she just mentioned that it would be an interesting topic to cover and specifically she was curious about stearic acid, which is something that Brad talks about. And then uh, Dominic had asked, uh, he just said he was pretty interested in our opinion of it and had mentioned that um, Brad Marshall favors starch over sugar and says that simple sugars make you fat, uh, and that it isn't. You know, a lot of the anti-sugar things out there are kind of on the surface, just saying sugar causes inflammation and whatever. But um, Brad and, and you know, on the in the Fire and Bottle website digs into the physiology a little bit, so which makes it interesting. And, and Dominic was curious about that. So before we dig into some of the details, I do want to just make it clear that none of this is personal you know we have we do have quite a few disagreements with uh with brad but none of this is personal uh as far as any of that goes you know we just want to discuss the concepts here and again we're only bringing this up just because uh, because for one people are curious about it and then also a lot of his conclusions do overlap with some of the bioenergetic view and ray pete's views as far as carbs not necessarily being universally bad and saturated fat being favored over um unsaturated fat but as we'll get into it the reasoning behind these things are pretty th- there's a lot of discrepancy between our view or, or the bioenergetic bioenergetic view and his and along with that also is he so Brad Marshall kind of builds on some other researchers in the low carb space that really get into some pretty like they get in in depth into some of the physiology and some of the biochemistry as far as why low carb diets may or may not be beneficial I mean these are generally people who are arguing in favor of them and most people who are arguing in favor of low-carb diets are kind of doing it more on the surface level and just talking about how i don't know, talking about insulin and uh, how sugar drives inflammation and just kind of throwing some of those
1: uh, a lot of associations like yeah. high insulin and diabetes and just insulin and obesity and things like that, and oh, it's causing those diseases, instead of looking at the actual mechanisms underlying insulin and what's happening at the cellular level.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And they'll say, like, the body's supposed to run on fat because that's what our ancestors would have done. That's like the paleolithic way, and carbs wouldn't have been available, and mitochondria would run better on fat. They just kind of like throw these these things around without, as you said, digging into some of those more in-depth cellular mechanisms. So. Uh, because brad does do that i think it's it's worth digging into and along with that too i also want to make it clear that we're not going to be like digging through each of the tons of articles that he has and all the studies that he uh that he cites but rather we're just going to focus on the bigger picture ideas and where we see some issues and uh we will bring up some of those studies that he does cite maybe not in specific but just some of his conclusions from them but uh yeah it's not you know we're not trying to just spend the time to to kind of go through each and every minor point, but rather the big picture. And along with that too, it's, I think there's a lot of value in what he recognizes, which is again, built off some of these other researchers. One is Peter from hyperlipid and it's, there's some really great findings there that I agree with the findings and the, the kind of connections between what's happening with what's being eaten and what's happening on the cellular level and physiological level, but Basically, you know, with the bioenerg- bioenergetic view, we basically draw the opposite conclusion from the same, some of the same evidence and some of the same concepts. So, uh, even though Brad happens to have some similar conclusions, I would say it's almost kind of coincidental, and we'll get into that. But just to start it off, also the kind of basics of the cr- "quote unquote" croissant diet uh, is basically a high saturated fat diet, a very low PUFA diet uh favoring glucose like some amount of glucose not a huge part of the diet uh, but being very anti-fructose and relatively low on the protein side and then with this too one of the main ideas is wanting to keep insulin low which for the most part a lot of these concepts are very similar with the low carb crowd where fructose is kind of a poison and i'm not saying that brad is saying it this simplistically but the idea is that fructose is a poison and insulin drives fat gain and insulin resistance and diabetes and all of that which we've talked about quite a bit and I'll link to some of those episodes specifically about insulin, but also we'll, we'll dig into all of it. So. Okay.
1: So I guess start us off. I don't know where exactly you wanted to start with this.
0: Well, so the, so, uh, from this, you know, Brad Marshall basically puts out two main, he kind of goes through two main theories as his main support for his diet and conclusions and how it came to it. And the first has to do with has to do with reactive oxygen species and then the second has to do with scd1 which is an enzyme that converts saturated fats into monounsaturated fats and we'll dig into that but he I think on his website he has it he starts off from the scd1 standpoint but we're actually going to start off with the reactive oxygen species because I would argue that that's more underlying and and kind of more on the deeper level so just to start with his you know, paraphrasing his general view here, or just even before that, I guess, like what are reactive oxygen species and why they matter. Uh, Basically, these are byproducts that are produced during the regular processes of energy production. They're also produced outside of the mitochondria, uh, just when anytime there's any sort of kind of damaging or destructive agent, and which then interacts with various proteins or fats or sugars. And basically, these It creates free radicals, which uh, can cause this kind of oxidative stress that's talked about quite often. And reactive oxygen species is one of the main main forms of free radicals. And they are produced just normally when it's like a normal byproduct of energy production. But certain things will lead to increases in their production and decreases. And they basically act as pretty major signaling molecules of the general state of the cell and the general state of a tissue or just health in general. You want to add anything there?
1: No, I mean, it's just... It's pretty basic whenever you're producing energy through the mitochondria, whether it's cell respiration, beta-oxidation, there's going to be some production of reactive oxygen species. Right. I just wanted to clarify that it's like it happens through cell respiration or beta-oxidation. Or- mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, anytime we're basically converting some fuel to energy, it's a normal byproduct. And so uh, from the fire in a bottle croissant diet point of view, and this is also building off of hyperlipid or peter from hyperlipid. The idea here is that reactive oxygen species end up being beneficial in large amounts because they basically, I mean, I don't know if they say this as much, but I would argue that they're basically signaling stress, and because of that, they cause this adaptive cascade in response to that stress. And that adaptive cascade leads to an increase in oxidation of fat. It leads to the release of stress hormones. It leads to the activation of all of these of all these kind of signaling molecules. So this would in, ends up involving the sirtuins. It involves AMP kinase. It involves MAPK and or MAPK um, NRF two. Like there's the sometimes the J and K pathway. There's just all these different. Um, like adaptive signaling compounds that are involved when there's a lot of reactive oxygen species produced, and it leads to these adaptive effects. And those adaptive effects again include fatty acid oxidation. They also include things like apoptosis. They include mitochondrial biogenesis, uh, the release of stress hormones, as I mentioned, and also uncoupling, which is a big one that we'll we'll discuss too, because it is kind of a focus of this view. And along with this is, and this kind of jives very much with. The low carb view where um and the reason for that is because as uh as brad talks about the when fats are being burned as a fuel they create more reactive oxygen species
1: than glucose
0: right more than more than they would if it was glucose and so that drives all of these pathways and so go ahead
1: i was going to say in different types of fats uh, cause differing amounts of reactive oxygen species. And his preference for the more saturated fats is due to their ability to create, to generate more reactive oxygen species than the monounsaturated poly. So there's sort of a spectrum of reactive oxygen species production with glucose being least, then polyunsaturated fatty acids, then monounsaturated fatty acids, and then saturated being the most.
0: And along with that too, the, the length of the fat Uh, also affects that so the longer chain fats will produce much more reactive oxygen species and the shorter chain fats will produce much less so those shorter chain fats end up being oxidized more similarly to glucose whereas the longer chain fats are less similar to glucose
1: which is kind of basically understood just like that's Mm -hmm. not just to put that out there that's not necessarily theory at this point that's sort of
0: it's not controversial
1: yeah it's not controversial it's understood Right. And that's why you see things like coconut oil, medium-chain triglycerides being promoted um, as quick fuel sources or, or, or things like that within the paleos- paleosphere, the ketosphere.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so from the a lot of the low-carb perspectives and from Brad's perspective as well, they you know the perspective or the idea is that you want to be increasing reactive oxygen species because you want to increase all of those downstream effects. You want continued fatty acid oxidation, you want uncoupling. Uh, you want all of the activation of all those signaling molecules, and that this is what's going to lead to fat loss and all sorts of other benefits. Uh, and we'll dig into why and why why or why not really. And along with that is this idea of physiological insulin resistance, which is, is also goes hand in hand with the Randall cycle, where the production of reactive oxygen species and the which is again the product of the FADH2 production from fat oxidation compared to carb oxidation, that's what accounts for the increase in reactive oxygen in species. We've talked about that before, so I'll link to that that episode.
1: And that's because of the bottleneck at complex one and complex two with the excessive amounts of FADH2 compared to in fat oxidation compared to glucose oxidation.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So they compete for the same electron acceptor, which is ubiquinol, and um, because of that, when you have more FADH2, which is produced from longer chain fats, uh, and more saturated fats, you're going to have more competition and you end up with a lot more reactive oxygen species being produced from complex one of the electron transport chain than you would from something like glucose. Yep. And so just, uh, so just to kind of envelop, um, Brad's view here, i I have a few quotes that I'll be using throughout because I don't want to be, you know, I want to make sure that I'm using his own phrasing um so again his perspective is he wants to keep he basically wants to increase the oxidation of saturated fats to increase reactive oxygen species production and again as i was mentioning this drives physiological insulin resistance which is basically a state where the cells are not accepting glucose and we've talked about this in terms of the randall cycle before where basically there are several mechanisms within uh that come as a result of fat oxidation. One is the increase in and they all kind of center around this increase in FADH2. And these mechanisms prevent the cell from using glucose at the same time. And then vice versa. So basically the cell is in general only gonna or any individual mitochondrion is only going to be using fat or glucose at one time. And the reason is because there are all of these mechanisms that when you're using one substrate prevent the other from being used and vice versa. So when the fat is being used, that can be considered physiological insulin resistance because the cell becomes resistant to insulin, quote-unquote, meaning that it won't it won't take up more glucose because it's not using the glucose. So uh, Brad says, reactive oxygen species generated from saturated fat metabolism is the signal that prevents cells from switching from fat metabolism to glucose metabolism. They do this by creating a short-term condition of physiological insulin resistance, which prevents cells from responding to insulin. And therefore, switching over to glucose burning as long as the cells are still burning saturated fat. So there's that idea that from his view, you want the cells to be uh, burning saturated fat to produce a lot of reactive oxygen species. That's going to allow the continuation of the burning of saturated fat. And then it's also going to lead to other supposedly beneficial effects like uncoupling and brown fat and all of that.
1: And I think the big thing for him to start was weight loss. Because right. con- you're continuing to drive fatty acid oxidation in this state. So then and if that's the case, then you should be able to burn off all your weight, essentially.
0: Right. That's the idea is that more fat oxidation, meaning more burning of fat as a fuel equals weight loss, which it's important to bring up because that's it's not quite that simple.
1: The other thing I want to point out here is that your body is not only doing either fat oxidation or glucose oxidation. That on the cellular level, yes, that may be the case. The mitochondria is going to either do fat oxidation or glucose oxidation. And obviously the differing types of fats have a differing effect as well, whether it's, you know, medium chain triglyceride or short chain fat, etc. So because a lot of people, I think, get caught up sometimes on the idea of the Randall cycle where they say, oh, I'm going to gain weight if I eat fat and carbs at the same time because you can only you can only oxidize one or the other but your body's always oxidizing both at the same time there's always yeah, and that's your body which is different from your cells obviously your body is composed of cells so different different cells are oxidizing different substrate at the same time you're always going to have fatty acid oxidation you're always going to ha- have a degree of in of uh, glucose oxidation it's just how much are you using in different areas and so the 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 purpose or the the idea behind Brad's ideas is to basically push higher fat oxidation and, it, and i think initially it was to lose weight if, if i remember correctly from reading his articles uh so it was to push fatty acid oxidation pretty significantly induce a general state of physiologic insulin resistance and then essentially your body is gonna burn through your fat
0: fat burning mode <laughs> yep. which yeah.
1: which is the same thing they talk about with with keto is the and, and a lot of people don't realize this is that in keto, there is a physiologic insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is insulin is low because there's, there's no, there's not necessarily such a need for insulin at that point. Cause there's not a lot of carbs being consumed. And a lot of the body is functioning basically on fatty acid oxidation. So in the keto state, you are insulin resistant. I know a lot of people try and use it as, Oh, I'm going to fix my insulin resistance with keto. And it's like, no, you're just like you're now you're more insulin resistant. You're just not eating carbs,
0: <laughs> right? You're just entirely avoiding that um, stimulus. And, and it's really important to point that out. And again, that is why I felt like this was worth digging into because, yeah, most people who are in favor of low carb, whether they're pushing that out to other people or just doing it themselves, they're not aware that they're what they're doing is causing that physiological insulin resistance. It is increasing oxidative stress on this, uh, you know, cellular mitochondrial level. And it's just, when you d- get down into it, if you're arguing for low-carb and for keto, you have to be arguing for that, which Brad is doing, which is why I think it's worth digging into. But most people don't realize that. And if you were to tell them that, they would maybe say that's not such a good idea. So it's worth pointing out that, that uh, you know, to kind of, I guess, prevent that sort of cognitive dissonance and, and for people to actually understand what they are doing when they're using these interventions.
1: Well, and the, and the thing I also want to point out here is Physiologic insulin resistance is actually different from pathologic insulin resistance. Being yeah. insulin resistant in a keto state or using the methods that Brad discusses, which is semi-similar to a keto state, is can be reversed. Uh, pathological insulin resistance with something like dia- type 2 diabetes, it can also probably be reversed, but at the same time, it's not because they're just eating too much fat. There's other There's other. I guess dysregulated mechanisms going on where you actually have a, a high insulin state with high free fatty acids and high insulin with high cortisol, and so there's like a combination of dysregulated metabolism that, at the cellular level and, and across the body that's leading to the it's it's basically the continued insulin resistance despite the consumption of carbohydrate, uh, right. and so that's an entirely different there just because they're insulin resistance. And they have this, like they at the cellular level, the same sort of ideas going on where the cells are not accepting glucose, the way it's happening is different. And when we're discussing what's going on with Brad, the the pathways that he's discussing are probably similar to like our understanding of the pathways, but the outcome or the what to do about it, uh, it, the, the practice or the interpretation is going to be different. So those nuances become important to understand instead of just, oh, insulin resi- this is insulin resistance. It's, how does that come about? Um, and that's, that's why I think it's important to, uh, as you mentioned, but also why I think it's important to go through it is because it's important to go through the nuance and understand the mechanism because the mechanisms as far as creating ROS at the mitochondria from oxidizing fatty acids, that, that's not controversial. It's just the question is, just, do we really want that? And then so basically, it's are we going to go through? We're going to go through essentially the, the the nuance behind that. But I know it, at the beginning here, like with Roy or Jay, at least is throwing a lot out to start because you have to set up the picture in order to, you know, in order to to con or to have a discrepancy with the argument. And you first have to go through what all the presuppositions are. Mm-hmm. before you can even say well i don't think it's right because of this like because there's a lot of with at least with, even with brad's argument or with the keto arguments for people who are arguing it for on a cellular for it on a cellular level there's a lot of um i guess background or foundational concepts that need to be discussed or brought out and that and a lot of them aren't even controversial so
0: yeah definitely and and just to clarify, too, about the insulin-resistant situation, you can be avoiding carbs and be just physiologically insulin-resistant and then go back to eating carbs and still be, quote-unquote, pathologically insulin-resistant, too. Just because yeah. they're two different things doesn't mean that they're also mutually exclusive. I mean, if you're in a physiologically – I mean, I don't know. The, the names are pretty bad, too, because I would say that pathological insulin resistance is still physiological. It's it's not not very well named, but – uh, there yeah. it's worth noting the discrepancy there, but also that just because someone's physiologically insulin resistant doesn't mean that then they can have carbs and be okay. Sometimes it does. Uh, whereas if you're quote unquote pathologically insulin resi- resistant, it does for sure mean that when you have carbs, you're not quote unquote, okay, you're not insulin sensitive.
1: Yeah. You're not oxidizing them. Right. So, and that's important to point out here because we will, we are going to get into that and, especially because it comes up with discussing brad's ideas Mm -hmm. yeah so that's why we're it's not tangential like it'll play into the argument i think downstream once you go through all the foundational concepts here
0: yeah yeah and so the other main one going going on to that next one from the reactive oxygen species side of his argument has to do with the saturation of fats so as you kind of mentioned earlier uh saturated fats are going to lead to a greater amount of FADH2 production, and because of that, they'll lead to a greater amount of reactive oxygen species production at the electron transport chain, whereas PUFA or any unsaturated fat, but the more unsaturated it is, the more unsaturated it is, the less uh, FADH2 will be produced and the less reactive oxygen species will be produced when it's oxidized in a controlled manner in the mitochondria. And that last part's important too, and we'll we'll discuss that. But,
1: oh, and on. that that reactive oxygen species production is what's determining the insulin resistance or not, and that's and so essentially the more saturated fatty acids you have, the more ROS, the more insulin resistance, uh, and the and this is this specifically comes down to the the double bonds in the the carbon chains on the fatty acids. So with the polyunsaturated fatty acids, there's more double bonds, and basically. When you, I, I don't know how much you wanted to go into this, but when you're breaking down the change of fats, they break them down into the two carbon groups, and with the polyunsaturated fatty acids, with with each double bond, there, they don't need to be, there doesn't need to be a breakdown into that two carbons. Like you don't, our body doesn't have to break it down. It, it just breaks down based on whatever the chemistry is at that in that step.
0: Right. Like you don't, and there's no FADH2 production there, which is the key point. Exactly. Yeah yeah so and and so basically what it's saying is that unsaturated fats when they're going through beta oxidation act similarly to a smaller chain fat Uh, basically every double bond is kind of not counted as an extra one of those chains so
1: and when they break and as you said when they break the chain what the process of breaking the chain produces the fadh right um and so basically what you're looking at with the what you're looking at with the fats in general is the ratio of FADH produced for each, I guess, chain of fat. And that's mm-hmm. why you see with shorter chains, you have, uh, you have, uh, uh so the, the, le- the smaller, the ratio, the less amount of FDA, FDA, FADH2 produced the, um, the closer it is to oxid, oxidation like glucose.
0: Right. Yeah, And so they even, they'll use like, uh, a- a number there to to describe the fadh2 to nadh ratio uh, which so i think for glucose it's like 0.2 or something and then for uh, meaning as much a much lower ratio of fadh2 to nadh whereas with these other fats it might be like 0.5 i don't remember the exact values but uh just for reference yeah so so just to, to quote brad here this is so this is before i quote that so just to clarify so he is saying that polyunsaturated fats are a problem But he's saying that it's because when they're oxidized as fuel in the mitochondria, they're more similar to glucose and they'll produce less reactive oxygen species. And again, to clarify, yes, he is saying he's not a fan of PUFA for this reason, but it is almost the opposite reason of why the bioenergetic community says that they're not a fan of PUFA, which is actually because because they drive reactive oxygen species production. And we'll talk about that in a second. So his quote here is, Uh, He says, instead of choosing unsaturated fats to avoid free radical formation, which leads to insulin resistance, we should be seeking out long-chain saturated fats, which cause free radical formation, which leads to physiological insulin resistance. So, it was, I guess maybe it wasn't super clear there, but what he's saying is that unsaturated fats will produce less free radicals, the long-chain saturated fats will produce more, and he's saying that's a good thing because it leads to physiological insulin resistance. So, before we go on to some of the other parts of his theory as far as SCD1 goes uh, i'd like to just break down these current you know these current theories we've gone over and where we feel like there are issues and i guess we might as well start with the polyunsaturated fats one just cuz we we just kind of yeah, went they there yeah just said it yeah right and so i agree and just to start like i agree that the polyunsaturated fats when they're oxidized in this controlled way through the mitochondria as a fuel They will lead to less reactive oxygen species production, which we talked about, and that has to do with that uh, lower FADH2 to NADH ratio compared to an equally long saturated fat. Now, where I disagree is basically how relevant that is, where my concern, and in general, I think the concern with the polyunsaturated fats from the bioenergetic community is not about what happens when they're oxidized in a controlled manner in a controlled manner through the mitochondria, where they're just used to produce energy. But rather, what happens when that doesn't happen, and what if they can the even get to that before point? That. Exactly, and yeah, exactly, and and if that even does happen, because as we've talked about in the past, uh, fats are not like the only purpose of fats is not fuel; they're also used structurally, and they're also used as basically signaling molecules, and that is very much the case when it comes to the polyunsaturated fats. So, and I'll I'll link to a previous episode we did talking specifically about them, but for one, in general, they're much less stable and much more susceptible to damage, which is called lipid peroxidation. And so, as you were kind of saying, the chance of the polyunsaturated fat, even getting to a point where it's going to be oxidized in the mitochondria, is not necessarily all that high, considering that it's so susceptible to damage in the meantime. And, you know, we've talked about some examples of this as far as why... You know, if you were to leave basically one of those fats out at room temperature or 90 degrees like our bodies are at uh, on a counter, it's going to oxidize there and get damaged uh, just from sitting out on the counter like that. So
1: not to mention any cooking or digestion either.
0: Right. Exactly. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Which will basically will oxidize any type of cooking of the polyunsaturated fatty acids is pretty much guaranteed to oxidize them. So, I mean, it's. Even if you're going to eat your fish, you know, if it's, if it's, you know, if it's you're cooking your fish, you're going to have oxidized polyunsaturated fatty acid products.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: And to talk about vegetable oils or whatever is just a whole other, whole other problem. And obviously, after that, the signaling molecules, right? And I guess you're going to get to that next.
0: Yeah. But even before that, too, one thing that's, I think, funny to point out is that if you're in a state with excessive free radical formation via reactive oxygen species, then, any lipid is going to be way more susceptible to getting uh, to that damage to that lipid to being oxidized. yeah. right? Exactly. So if you have PUFa circling around and you have and you're saying that you want to be oxidizing all these fats to produce a ton of free radicals, then that PUFa is definitely not going to be getting to that point where it's uh, oxidized in a controlled manner in the, in the mitochondria for fuel. Instead, you're just going to end up with damaged fats and and all of their products, which are found in virtually every. Uh, disease and chronic health condition imaginable and uh are responsible for a lot of issues as far as human health go goes
1: yeah and then the other thing to point out here is if you're going to eat a lot of pufa in general and i guess this will play into the scd1 eventually but it also does get stored in the tissue i mean they're they're and they're showing that like fatty acid uh fatty acid concentrations or percentages in the modern Humans or modern Americans' tissue is pretty saturated with linoleic acid, which is one of the main fatty acids found in the American diet. It's not necessarily saturated fat; it's usually uh, linoleic acid from like soybean oil or canoil, canola oil or sunflower oil or some vegetable oil, some mass-produced vegetable oil, which is which is problematic. And they even have studies looking at consumption and trends in the diet over periods of time, showing increases in consumption, and then also there's. There's basically tissue sampling showing increases in in uh, in percentage in the tissue as well. So we're seeing that increased consumption, and I guess you can call it an association. But you're seeing increased consumption and an also increased uh, increased saturate uh, saturation of tissue with unsaturated fats, or increased percentage of <laughs> unsaturated fats in the tissue.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and then the other thing we were getting at too. I mean, there's a couple, but one is. Uh, that basically these polyunsaturated fats end up amplifying inflammation. Basically, they're metabolized through various enzymes. You've got the LOX and COX enzymes that lead to basically these inflammatory signals that cause various issues. And one of the things that they will do is is amplify any sort of inflammatory process or cascade, which uh, again is one of the main issues. Like kind of one of my main issues, one of our main issues with the polyunsaturated fats, something that Ray-Pete talks a lot about, and, and again, is just kind of outside of them being oxidized in the mitochondria. I mean, this is going to be happening if you're eating or getting a lot of polyunsaturated fats.
1: Yep. And I mean, they're using those the low linoleic acid diets therapeutically now, which we've talked about. So the other thing to point out about the polyunsaturated fatty acids is even if you're going to consider that they, they are a essential fatty acid, the amounts are also very low, if if you believe they are the amounts are considered extremely low so as far as avoiding a deficiency i mean you, you don't need to eat too much i mean not especially not enough to make it a large percentage of calories as in terms of it being a a energy source it i mean <laughs> right, right, to serve yeah. the functions that you need you don't it won't even it won't it's a couple grams maybe yeah. of the combination of omega 3 and omega 6 so so overall just There's not a good picture for consuming large amounts of polyunsaturated fatty acids as an energy source, and it's also, it's also, as far as them being substrate to drive more insulin sensitivity. I mean, in that case, just have carbs.
0: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And again, I mean, Brad agrees that you know he agrees for the most part that we shouldn't be eating polyunsaturated fats, but again, his reasoning is kind of opposite of ours, and.
1: I guess I'm thinking along the SCD one type of deal.
0: Okay, well we'll we'll get there. Yeah,
1: I know we haven't gotten there yet, but I guess I sort of conflated or not conflated, but was like thinking along that pathway.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, which we because it is a little complex where uh, Brad does talk favorably about certain types of polyunsaturated fats because they help to uh, decrease SCD one, but
1: whereas here we don't want them because they because they burn more like glucose right and we're, they won't produce as much ros in at the cell if they're being oxidized but we're saying it, it's unlikely that it, it wouldn't be a good idea to eat them in large enough quantities to have them being oxidized on a regular basis at the cellular level and if
0: that was happening you'd be ending up with way more free radicals anyways
1: yeah but not from ros generation at the mitochondria from other processes outside of of the uh oxidative metabolism of the polyunsaturated fatty acids just from being in the body in general and being highly peroxidizable.
0: That's true, but also in the mitochondria too, where one of the things that does happen when we eat a lot of PUFAs, they get integrated into the cellular structure and that includes the structural components of the mitochondria. It includes cardiolipin, which is one of the parts of the electron transport chain. And it also includes what's called a mitochondrial membrane, which is where the electron transport chain exists. And so if you have a lot of polyunsaturated fats in those areas... You do see a lot of reactive oxygen species produce, and you also see uncoupling, and you also see the driving of fatty acid oxidation, which is all of the things that Brad is saying are good. That I, you know, I'm, we would argue are not good, and we're we'll, we're about to get into why exactly those are so not good. But uh, the polyunsaturated fats are actually one of the main drivers of of that state of perpetual fatty acid oxidation and perpetual stress. So yep.
1: this is over long term consumption with incorporation into the mitochondria itself, right? So you have it has to, basically you have to l- look at it from more than a perspective of oxidation.
0: Right, as a fuel, like oxidation is a fuel in the mitochondria. Exactly.
1: Cuz everything in the the lens that we're seeing here with Brad is looking at it from the perspective of oxidizing a substrate as a fuel, but is what else does this substrate do as it moves through the body and and every other component before it, it even becomes oxidized? And what happens if it becomes uh, a a part of the tissue what happens if it becomes a part of the mitochondria a part of the cellular structure what problems happen there i mean then i guess you can go to like the membrane saturation pacemaker theory
0: yeah and we have talked about it i'll link to articles in previous episodes about it but basically the the what it shows is that the more unsaturated fats we have in the membranes of the mitochondria and also of the cell as a whole the faster we age and
1: yeah after a specific point
0: right Uh, basically it drives aging and decreases lifespan which is the opposite of what the goal is for both us and brad he's just and and we actually do again to be clear we we do agree that poof are bad but um, and should be ideally for avoided but it's for opposite reasons basically
1: and we also do agree that at, at least the studies show that polyunsaturated fatty acids uh don't cause insulin resistance like saturated fatty acids do that's not controversial that's pretty much known
0: Yeah,
1: in the feeding studies that they do, basically, you'll you'll see that as far as from an oxidation standpoint, when you flood with saturated fatty acids, you will get insulin resistance.
0: Right, but as we talk, as we'll talk about later, specifically specifically with SCD one, when you do have PUFA, it does make carb metabolism, it does dramatically impair carb metabolism and lead to insulin resistance and fatty liver and all of that over the
1: long term. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So again, and this is, I mean, that's a perfect. Example basically where oxidizing this as a fuel, you know, doesn't produce a lot of free radicals from our p- perspective. That's not really such a problem. O- oxidizing PUFA as a fuel, our perspective is everything other than that is a huge problem. And, uh, yeah, so that's why we would still say it's and that's, the bad pro- that's the problem. That's
1: the problem with context because right. you have what's the context of oxidation or uh, what's the context of being exposed to PUFA acutely. Versus in the long term, what's the context of looking at PUFA just from oxidizing as a substrate versus what else goes on in other levels in the body, whether it's inflammatory mediators or integration into the tissue. So you have to look at multiple contexts to get a a larger picture overall. You can't just focus in on one specific pathway or mechanism. I'm not accusing Brad of doing that at all. I'm just talking about it from the perspective in general, like as a general statement. You have to look at everything in context or Mm -hmm. else you won't be able to get an ideal picture because some things in certain contexts look great, whereas other things in other contexts don't look so, don't look, or the same thing in another context won't look so great. So it's sort of trying to look at the whole picture and all the context in general to get a general understanding of how is this substance or, or this component working in the system. And also you need to have a context of the system too.
0: Right, right, and and again, as you said, uh, like as you said, you're not accusing Brad of doing this, and he does have kind of opposing views of PUFA in the same way that we do, where we're saying when they're oxidized, maybe not in the mitochondria as fuel, maybe not such a problem, but other than that, huge problem. And he's saying the opposite, where oxidizing them as a fuel in the mitochondria is a problem, but otherwise, and as far as their effects on SCD one, they're actually semi beneficial. So we'll get to that. But um, and, you know, as I said before, we basically have opposing interpretations as him, uh, with whereas we agree with kind of the evidence that we're using, but kind of again, opposite opposite interpretations.
1: We draw different conclusions. Basically.
0: Yeah, opposite conclusions. Yeah. And so that does lead to the next kind of the main feature of this the, uh, the kind of Ross reactive oxygen species theory of obesity that he's putting out, which is that increasing free radicals, increasing reactive oxygen species is the goal. Uh, and so that's something that we basically disagree with entirely well i shouldn't say entirely uh, but contextually in the way that he's putting it i would disagree with and so again to clarify he's saying basically that i would you know i would call it inefficiency of uh, substrate oxidation so because saturated fat oxidation is relatively inefficient it creates these free radicals that causes this whole stress cascade with inflammation and i would argue really degeneration and a couple of pieces here that I think are worth noting is, is basically that you know we talk about energy being that central factor that determines health. And when you're producing a lot of reactive oxygen species and creating these stress cascades uh, through inefficient energy production, you're ending up with a lack of energy. So when you're using a lot of fat for fuel... You are producing some energy, but it's at a much lower rate because you have this free radical production and you have this these kind of breaks in the system. You have the excess FADH two, which then leads to a lower NAD ten ADH ratio, and that slows down the whole system, like in the, in the short term, and leads to low energy. Then, because of that lack of energy, you have this kind of stress. Like if if you only need a low amount of energy, that's fine. Like muscles at rest, not an issue. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you have an increased demand, or if you're trying to oxidize fats anywhere else where you need more energy, then that causes this whole stress cascade that uh, does lead to increased energy production, but at the basically at the cost at, at a cost of stress, and it does lead to uncoupling, which uh, basically is a way of saying that in this case things are not working well. At the electron transport chain we can't produce more energy there without just creating a ton of free radicals. So, we're going to produce as much energy as we can higher up in those cycles in the Krebs cycle and then in beta oxidation or glycolysis.
1: And then ex- expended as heat.
0: Right. And then you end up with a bunch of dissipation as heat.
1: So, it's in a, those are adaptive responses to right, a, right. a pathologic mechanism, which is something that, and I guess <laughs> there's your hormesis argument there.
0: Right. Right. And, and so, one good example here is for, like, as far as within human physiology that corroborates this idea that. The fat oxidation leads to high free radicals, but at the cost of a lack of energy. Is our brain, where it's known that our brains can't use fats for the for the vast most part, you know, like very tiny amount in certain contexts. Uh, and if so, it has to be very short chain fats. And anyway, on from there, basically, our brains can't use anything that produces a high FADH two to NADH ratio, like a long chain saturated fat, because of this, because it'll produce so much of these free radicals without being able to produce a lot of energy. And we know that our brain is our by far the most energy intensive organ or tissue in our bodies, where it only makes up 2% of our total body's weight, but uses as much as, you know, around 20% of our total energy that we produce. So this is why our brains have to be fueled on glucose or ketones. And ketones are oxidized very similarly to glucose in that they have a low FADH2 to NADH ratio, uh, mm-hmm. leading to very efficient energy production with a very low amount of of reactive oxygen species and that production of energy is what i would say makes all the difference and we can dig into why that is but but I would, just to kind of set that foundation is that i think that the most important thing is having very efficient energy production that leads to a lot of atp production also a lot of co2 production which is um, which is basically the the most vital component of of our bodies and by vital i literally mean like life-giving
1: structure structure pr- providing organizing mm-hmm. it's the organizing force of, of or the coherence or the quorum creating force of the body that's i mean that is our our point of view in general and that, that i guess that goes down to if you want to talk about it from a structuring water perspective right right so which is then whereas these other mechanisms and pathways that are being discussed in these other levels are Let's rely on these backup systems. Let's induce a stress. And then we have all these protective adaptive mechanisms and let's, let's just keep inducing those. Exactly. Instead of why don't we just not rely on the, the adaptive mechanisms from the start? Why don't we just oxidize sugar fully to as much ATP as possible and produce as much CO2 as possible, drive the bore effect and keep the system... I guess in a feed-forward cycle and running flowing. smoothly, flowing exactly,
0: yeah, yeah, uh, and and so the the main place where this differs, like where people get this idea that we want to be driving those stress cascades, does come down to hormesis, which is this mistaken idea, and I've I would say uh, where the I basically the idea is that a small amount of stress or some amount of stress leads to adaptations that make the organism stronger in the long term and the short of it is that yes the organism becomes stronger in response to stress and that it's more resilient to that stress or less affected i should say by that stress but i would say that in the long term that comes at a cost of basically health and also longevity in many cases but this is where a lot of the again a lot of the hormesis ideas and support comes from a lot of research that does have to do with longevity Where what they see is that in, especially in organisms like C. elegans, which is a very tiny worm. And yeast uh, and things like that. Yeah, and in yeasts as well. uh, Basically very primitive organisms. What you see is that when these stress pathways are activated, uh, you see an extension in in lifespan. And that involves all of these signals that are supposedly supposed to be beneficial and are driven by things like fatty, fatty acid oxidation. They're driven by basically any sort of stress. They'll, they'll do calorie restriction is a, is a huge one. Uh, but the problem here is is basically just a, a conflation of this research, a misunderstanding of this research, and misapplication of it, where, especially in the case of something like uh, the C. elegans, the extension of lifespan is not happening because the C. elegans is healthier, but instead is happening because it's basically hibernating. It's, it's transitioning into a hibernation state, which happens to be characterized by excessive fatty acid oxidation and a lack of glucose oxidation and a lack of energy and a lack of electron uh, transport chain function
1: and a decrease of function which is important to keep in mind from the hibernation state it's not like the yeah. worm is it's not like the worm or the yeast or the rat or the monkey are when they go on these diets whether caloric restriction whatever method they're using they all of a sudden are more they're like more active they're doing better overall they're They have a higher libido, they have a better mental function, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's more like, okay, they're now they're, you know, they're, they're not doing as much in the hibernation state. The worm is pretty much inactive. It's right. So it's like, yes, the lifespan is extended. Great. But at the same time it's like, what are you sacrificing for that? You have, you have the total amount of time expended, but what's being done in that time is, is it almost cancels itself out because the quality of the time is, is just eliminated especially for the hibernation period. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, the other thing I think that we've pointed out in other podcasts is that in the real world, the that state, this hibernation state for a lot of these organisms is wouldn't really exist because the organism would most likely die. Yeah. Because they're weakened in this state. It's a weakened state. Right. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that if you do fire in a bottle or Brad's, methods that you're going to be weakened and die that's not what we're saying it's just that you have to look at what's actually going on and the in those studies instead of just looking at the endpoint of oh increased lifespan must be great you have to see well what else happened what came with that increased lifespan and that's sort of where the nuance comes with a lot of these things and then so in some of the other studies you also uh, and we've talked about this too with like some of the monkey studies you have to look at what they're feeding them you're comparing an ad libidum um, lab-based diet with a diet that's more like a lab-based diet that's controlled it's like obviously the monkeys that weren't eating ad libitum pure sucrose lived longer lived longer essentially like they ate less crap
0: (laughs) right right yeah uh yeah so right so specifically with like c elegans we're seeing that hibernation where the animal is not actually viable it's just surviving and they have acknowledged the people who are semi-critical of this of this research or of these hormetic ideas uh have acknowledged that that wouldn't be feasible in the wild it's that we're only seeing this phenomenon of increased lifespan because there's no detriment to hibernation um because it's a controlled
1: environment there's there's no risk to being inactive at that point there's no threats they 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 can be inactive and be fine
0: right and and also of course we shouldn't really consider hibernation as an extension of, of lifespan. It's not an extension of like conscious active lifespan, which is what of course we're looking for.
1: I mean, and you can see that with people who, who carry out caloric restriction. I mean, they're, they're not holding a lot of muscle mass. They tend to be on the thinner side. I mean, would if you were to think of, I mean, we could probably cut it out, but if you were to think of things with like being in a stressful situation or having to defend yourself, being weaker, having, carrying a lot less body fat and, and, things like that would probably be detrimental.
0: Yeah. And you also see like a reduction in libido very often on a low carb diet or low
1: calorie diets, you know, mood changes. Yeah. yeah. Sleep issues.
0: Right. Exactly. Uh, And and so, and as you were mentioning as well in the studies outside of like C elegans, for example, where they're looking at rats and they're saying calorie restriction, which is equivalent of stress leads to lifespan extension and leads to all these benefits. And, I've, I've made this argument and explained all of this in detail in a couple of articles that I'll link to in the show notes, but the I, I would first say that it's not just as simple as calorie restriction because instead what they end up doing is they end up restricting the polyunsaturated fats, they end up restricting the inflammatory amino acids like methionine and cysteine and uh, tryptophan, and yep. as you said also, there's generally pretty poor study design where they're doing calorie restriction versus ad libitum. Which is not the same as calorie restriction versus a control diet. So it's like, it's obvious that they would see when these rats are being fed really bad food, it's obvious that they would see when they're eating ad libitum, there's all these problems. But that doesn't mean that the calorie restriction is beneficial. It just means that it's not harmful. Like, it's it better is. than the
1: other diet. That's what you're seeing.
0: Yeah. And what they found when they've looked at that research is that it's more just a feature of the ad libitum feeding rather than a feature of the calorie restriction being a good thing and same thing with the amino acid uh, side of things where they found that just restricting methionine without restricting calories as a whole results in those benefits so it doesn't make sense to attribute these things to stress or to attribute that like to attribute them to calorie restriction or to attribute them to stress caused by calorie restriction when there are all these other factors that are involved that account for these benefits that are not hormesis. So again to clarify hormesis is the idea that the stress is beneficial. It's basically what Brad is arguing for when he's talking about the benefits of the free radical formation and all the stress cascades. But instead, I would argue that that's not at all the case. The stress is not beneficial. If there are benefits it is due to other effects that are not the stress and you know just kind of laid out some of those common other effects that are occurring in these in these studies. And along with that too, I'm I want to clarify that I'm not saying that uncoupling is harmful. I'm not saying mitochondrial biogenesis or apoptosis or autophagy. I'm not saying that those things are not beneficial in yeah. context, but it's it's context dependent. And and the important part, circling back to the importance of energy, is and Brad has acknowledged this, which is that if you have a lot of ATP, that's also going to act as a bottleneck for Uh, mitochondrial respiration and it's also going to lead to free radical formation which will lead to a lot of these adaptive effects but the difference here is twofold one is that you have energy which means that you don't have signals of a lack of energy like ampk which amplifies a lot of these stress signals and has some unique effects on its own or unique pathways on its own that are kind of amplify stress Uh, but the other thing is you have you're protected against the free radicals by the atp itself and by the increased carbon dioxide so instead of having a state where you have low energy high free radicals and resulting high damage and excess stress and activation of all these stress pathways to try to pick energy back up and you know without causing too much damage instead when you create similar effects of of like uncoupling mitochondrial biogenesis and autophagy through increased atp when you have enough atp and that leads to the free radical production you do still have uncoupling which is again a defensive or an adaptive effect where the it's basically a signal that's saying if we keep producing energy we're going to just keep providing we're going to keep producing free radicals and we have enough atp so we don't need to do that so that's why you have the uncoupling in that context just to kind of get rid of the excess substrate but when you're doing when you're instead going through uncoupling in the other situation. It's more of, we need to stop this because of all these free radicals, but we don't have enough energy, so we also need to get as much energy as possible from those earlier steps of of respiration. And again, same thing with mitochondrial biogenesis, where on one hand, you have it as a means of producing more energy from more substrate, whereas on the other hand, you have it as a way to potentially be more resilient against stress. But again, the main differences here all come down to whether you have an abundant amount of energy or whether you have a lack of energy.
1: Why it's happening, essentially.
0: Right, right. Whether it's efficient energy production or inefficient. And what Brad's arguing for is basically what I would say, inefficient energy production and a lack of energy that drives stress. And I would say that, the and free radical production, and I would really say that the only situation where you want to have increased free radical production is in the context of high levels of energy, high ATP as a breaking mechanism. So uh, that's kind of the, I mean, one of the main issues, I'm mean, basically the main issue that I would say we have with his whole reactive oxygen species. Um,
1: the other thing theory. I think you should point out before we go, or I think we should point out in general, is that he's, t- when they're talking, oh, I guess this will go to SCD1, it's talking about ROS uh, closing was it SCD1 that it was shutting down? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then it's basically other things that do that are like hypoxia and endotoxin. And then thinking that just switching over to fatty acid oxidation is going to actually, Close off, though, create enough ROS to compete with endotoxin or hypoxia. It's just I don't think that that's. I mean, neither of you or I thought that that was reasonable.
0: Yeah, yeah, we'll get to that with SCD one. There is one other thing I do want to mention here, though, which is again this idea that fat burning or fat oxidation drives fat loss. And considering what we just described as far as the whole efficient versus inefficient energy production and leaving us with less energy and Versus a ton of inflammation and degeneration. I think it's, you know, that goes a long way, but it's not necessarily specific as far as fat loss goes. But some of the more specific things as far as needing fat oxidation for fat loss, uh, for one, I would just say that there's, you know, the research is not necessarily supportive of that. So there's that Kevin Hall study where he was looking at people in the metabolic ward and had them on a low carb diet, high fat diet uh, versus a higher carb, low fat diet. And found that in the low-carb, high-fat diet, they had less insulin, they had much higher levels of fatty acid oxidation, meaning they were they were fat burners, just like they're supposed to be, quote-unquote, and yet they had less fat loss. So, uh, that's that just kind of flies right in the face of that idea that we need to be burning fat to lose fat.
1: Yeah, And we've talked about this as well, because right. when you burn fat, you're also putting breaks on metabolism. When you burn excessive amounts of fat… And then you also affect the hormonal systems in far as far as lipogenesis and redistribution of nutrients or substrate goes. So it's not just, it's not as simple as oh, I'm burning fat, so I'm losing fat. It's like, are, okay, in the in the process of burning fat, are you also turning down metabolism? Are you also shifting lipogenesis? Are you also adjusting uh, substrate disposition or redistri- redistribution? Excuse me. So there's a lot more. Again, it all comes down to. To what's going on? On um, why why something is happening? What's the context of it? Not just oh, uncoupling is good because it's not always good. Oh, fat loss, fat burning is good. It's not always good. It really depends on on why it's occurring and where it's occurring.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to clarify too, yes, in order to get rid of body fat on a literal level, it either needs to be burned or excreted, and Just to clarify, that doesn't mean that you need to do things that increase fat burning to have fat burning. As we said earlier, there's always going to be some amount of fat oxidation going on. And as long as you're just getting that baseline level of fat oxidation, but you're decreasing fat deposition, you're going to lose fat. And the biggest thing that dictates fat deposition is hormone-related. Hormone, yep. Yeah, And so when you keep the stress hormones down by having adequate energy and driving thyroid hormone and um, actually having insulin, (laughs) which... Uh, is an important part of of making sure that the cells are getting carbohydrates and that the uh, liver it's is deep. not
1: only anabolic for fat tissue, which I think right. people need to understand as well. It's not just like insulin equals fat. It's not just insulin drives substrate into fat. It also drives substrate into other cells and tissues as well. So right. it's, it's important to realize that just because you have insulin doesn't mean you're going to be fat. I mean, bodybuilders are using insulin to build tissue.
0: Well, it's also important to to recognize that fat can be deposited with low insulin. You know, otherwise, people who were just only burning fat and having like then they would be losing a ton of weight like immediately, like at all times. They would never be able to store any fat, so they they would just be nonstop burning whatever's coming from their tissues, which is not the case. You do still have fat deposition when you're not eating carbs and you have low insulin. Yep, Uh, but yeah so so that's a huge part of it uh that that's worth describing again the other part too so as long as you're always you're always going to be oxidizing some amount of fat as long as you're not storing it you will have fat loss the other side as well is that fat can also be excreted through the liver it's a more minor pathway but it it does happen so that's another way that we will kind of quote unquote get rid of body fat
1: well also elevating some of the youth hormones or some of the Sex hormones like testosterone or progesterone or DHT will upregulate fat oxidation, but in the muscles and increase muscle mass and things like that, which will be more helpful than just running on a treadmill for an excessive amount or just becoming a pure fat burner.
0: Right. It's not going to be increasing them to the levels of,
1: of no, like no. a low-carb diet. Yeah. No, definitely not. But the other thing you'll see, and the thing that that is sort of the kicker here is that when you see people taking exogenous Hormones, you start to see fat deposition, or like for example, people taking corticosteroids. But then when you start to see people taking androgens, you see the fat loss rapid, and it's it's fat loss with lean tissue gain right. at at rates that you that are kind of hard to account for just on a on like a daily basis. It's you have an adjustment in metabolism overall that and a, an adjustment of how nutrients are used that is just it changes the system more so than like a calories in calories out type of idea or just, uh, oh, I just need to burn more fat type of idea. Like it's, there's like a systemic signal on multiple levels to shift pathways into certain directions. And that's why, where context becomes important. And when you start seeing something like that, it really brings in the question of the idea of, oh, I just need to burn fat at at least for me, at least Mm -hmm. for me, when I, when I see, you know, somebody could take a steroid and build lean tissue while shredding ridiculous amounts of fat. It's like, okay, there's something going on here. That's just purely beyond this idea of you have X amount of fat molecules that produce X amount of energy. And we're just going to shred. We're just going to go through that as fast as possible. There's other, there has, there's other mechanisms. And it's like, what are those mechanisms and what's the context surrounding that? What does the androgen change the cells? What, what response do the, do the cells have to the androgens or mm-hmm. to thyroid hormone or to glucocorticoids or etc
0: yeah yeah i mean and there's again as we've kind of alluded to there's a major cost to that kind of low carb version of of wanting to burn fat especially yeah. when you're looking at it systemically
1: man when you look at hormones and you see elevations in cortisol decrease in thyroid hormone function elevations in adrenaline decrease in androgens i mean you see prominent low carb people coming out and saying oh my testosterone is like 300 and yeah. that's at the bottom of the reference range you're just like well, something's got to be going on there or my cholesterol is sky high my cholesterol is like 300 something 400 something whatever it is high 200s and they're like you know 30 years old It's like okay there's an issue or or tsh is elevated or t3 t4 are, are way in the bottom of the reference range yeah. that's indicating what's going on on a systemic level
0: yeah yeah and we've, we've talked about the whole situation with cholesterol it's not as simple as higher is worse um in this in the case you're describing it's just a sign of hypothyroidism but exactly yeah or low metabolism same thing yeah so I'll, I'll link to uh an episode where we talked about that i'll link to some of those other episodes too where we talked about insulin resistance in more detail and fat burning and that whole situation but to kind of close this part out basically again i agree with brad's views as far as and as you said it's not necessarily controversial the idea that saturated fats are going to long chain ones are going to increase reactive oxygen species production and you know they're relatively less efficient and uh compared to glucose all of that so I agree with that but the the context or conclusion is the opposite where instead of wanting to drive free radical um, production I would say that we want to drive energy production more than anything we want to maximize that efficiency produce as much ATP and carbon dioxide as possible and with minimal uh, free radical production and if that those free radicals are being produced it's only because we have topped off those energy levels and we don't need to be um, running through energy production anymore and sometimes i think of this as kind of like an anti-hormesis idea Um, but yeah so then you know i would argue that that would be the ideal way to do you know to lead to effects like fat loss and reducing chronic inflammation and um, just improving health as a whole. And it's also the best way to get those beneficial effects like uncoupling. If someone's trying to do that, I would say the much yep. better way to do it is is by producing a lot of energy efficiently as opposed to the opposite.
1: Yep, I'm entirely on board. I mean, that's the basis of the entire idea that we present or the whole bioenergetic view is to oxidize glucose or oxidize sugar in general and then basically create CO2. On the back end, and continue. It's like it's such a beautiful feed forward system that is yeah. like it's why let's try and optimize that before we start relying on all these backup obscure obscure backup pathways to to and to uh, induce some type of adaptive response. It's like yeah. I just the the whole idea is just it it blows my mind. Of let's create some sort of stress so we can get the benefit from the adaptive response
0: yeah it's it's funny it's like the what we're describing as far as like very efficient glucose oxidation which i should say is easier said than done a lack of certain vitamins and minerals or excessive pufa or uh, endotoxin are all going to block that from happening but the ideal version of just it's just kind of like a free-flowing river of producing energy and it's almost like the argument against it is like you have this uh river but you're supposed to like block it and siphon that water off and then someone else is supposed to like carry that water in buckets and bring it back to the top so it's still flowing through but you're just like doing it through this weird convoluted way um yeah yeah um, i don't know but uh yeah it, it's just like the what we're discussing is doesn't require any of this kind of intervention on that mitochondrial level it's is very free and like a constant feed forward as you said um situation
1: and then optimizing from that process of the hormones downstream from that which right. is your thyroid hormone your androgen levels progesterone lowering your uh, cortisol your co- your glucocorticoids mineral corticoids etc
0: yeah and those are all just a reflection
1: exactly which is optimizing that whole system that's yeah. the basic idea and then once you do that you don't have to rely on on these adaptive pathways
0: yeah so yeah and just to clarify, too, what I was trying to get at earlier was you were talking about hormones, and I want to clarify that those hormones are a reflection of that energetic state. They yep. aren't, you know, we talk about them a lot, and that's because there's such an easy way to to characterize the state that's going on is by the hormones that are circulating at that time. And we can also see what happens when somebody adds those hormones onto their physiology and how they respond. So it's an easy starting place. But in reality, they're not the starting place. They are kind of secondary to what's actually happening underneath
1: they're the indicators essentially yeah they're the indicators of what's going on
0: yeah indicators and signals that tell the rest of the body what's going on elsewhere
1: yeah and when we look at them it's it's showing us what's going on right as while they are signaling molecules for the body you can basically look at what the body's signaling and get a sense of oh this is what's going on and right. i think those are looking at hormones as some of the the easier way to do it
0: All right, I hope you enjoyed that episode. That was part one of our series discussing our thoughts on the croissant diet. In part two of the series, we'll be digging into another piece of the croissant diet, which is the SCD1 theory of obesity. If you did enjoy today's episode, please leave a like or comment if you're watching on YouTube or if you're watching elsewhere and could leave a five star rating on iTunes or a review. All of those things really do a lot to help support the podcast and are very much appreciated. If you have any questions that you'd like us to answer on a future episode, feel free to send those in to jay at That's jay at jayfeldmanwellness.com. Or if you're watching on YouTube, you can just leave those questions in the comments. And to check out the show notes for today's episode, you can head over to jayfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast, where you can take a look at anything that we referenced throughout today's episode. And if you are dealing with any low energy symptoms, whether that's chronic cravings and hunger, low energy or fatigue, chronic pain, weight gain, brain fog, poor sleep or insomnia, digestive issues or inflammation or hormonal imbalances, or if you're dealing with any chronic health conditions or other symptoms, then head over to jfeldmanwellness.com/energy where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course where I will explain why these symptoms and conditions really come down to a lack of energy and I'll also walk you through the main things that you can do to maximize your cellular energy so that you can reverse these symptoms and conditions so to sign up for that free energy balance mini course head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy and with that I will see you in the next episode